Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Dan Carlin. Dan is a New York Times bestselling author as well as the host of the podcast, Hardcore History, Hardcore History Addendum, and Common Sense. His first book, The End is Always Near, Apocalyptic Moments, From the Bronze Age Collapse to Nuclear Near Misses, is available now. Dan, welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Our first question is always, where are you in the world right now? So I would love to know, I imagine you're in your home based on the current quarantine, but tell us, where is home for you? I live in Eugene, Oregon, and I was just thinking the other day that I've actually lived here for 25 years, and I still feel like a recent transplant. It's funny how that happens, but no, Eugene, Oregon is where I'm sitting right now. Tell us how quarantine is affecting your work right now. Obviously, for podcasting, I imagine that you're still able to be up and running. And obviously, as a writer, also a work that can be done in your home. How is it affecting you? It's funny. There was there were two things lately that, of course, I had to show my wife. One was sportscaster Jim Rome had said something on his sports show that I heard on the way to getting coffee one morning. And then there was an interview with Moby or something. I think it was in the New York Times. I don't know where it was. But both had the same sort of gist to it, and it was that neither one of them felt all that affected by the the whole coronavirus thing because their life didn't change all that much. And I showed it to my wife because I I said that myself. It's like, my life is kind of the same. This is what I do every day. I'm this hermit in my studio. You know, my wife always says, get out. You have to get out and do things. So they're locked up here with me. So their life has changed drastically, but, but my life is pretty much the same. I'm not flying to places like I do sometimes <laughs> speaking, but otherwise, job-wise, I'm still working just like always. And what are you working on? Are you working on another book? I believe this is your first book, correct? Basically, and I'm not working on another book because I can hardly get the darn podcasts out. I'm working on a, <laughs> I'm working on part. I like to have multiple feeds and then trickle out very little content on all of them. And so that's what I... So right now, the latest one we've got going is a part four, I want to say, but don't hold me to that, of our Supernova in the East series. It's overdue as they always are. And so we're pretty much seven days a week on that right now. I would love to dive right into process. We'd love to focus half of this episode on the writing process of your book, and then maybe the other half on the process for a podcast recording hardcore history. Does that sound good to you? Sure. Anything. Amazing. Going into the book, tell us about the inception of The End is Always Near. How did that idea come to you? Why did you choose that concept particularly? And how did you get started on it? Well, with writing, it starts off with me being a neophyte. And I don't know, I don't know how to write. I've never done a book before this in a professional sense with uh, all of the, the things that are involved in, a, in, in something like that when you're talking about literary agents or publishers or editors or all that stuff. And so I was taking a lot of direction from those people on what the proper way to go about doing some of this sort of thing is people have been approaching me for books for a long time. And my problem is always the same. I, you know, it's a time issue with me 
and I couldn't figure out a way to write a book and still do the podcast and not have it all be totally affected, the release schedule and whatnot. So we figured out ways to take some of the content research that we'd used before, repurpose it. They'd asked me, and it was an interesting idea, they asked me to sit down with the files from my earlier shows and sit them and lay them all out on the floor and say, do you see any connecting threads subject-wise between this material? And it sort of forces you like an ink blot test in a psychiatrist's office to look at your own work in, in a big picture sense and go, holy cow, I'm into some pretty dark things, right? You know, when you, when you look at, oh, this is the end of the world. And over this, oh, it's technology regressing. And over here, it's all pandemics. It's all a bunch of light and airy rainbow and unicorn type topics. But you're not always aware of it until you lay it all out in front of you as, as part of the exercise in figuring out what you might naturally want to write a book about. I've always, because you're forced during your career to come up with little shorthand elevator pitch marketing ways of describing your work, I've always said to people that, because it's true, that I'm interested in the extremes of the human experience. And so much of what revolves around the subjects in this book are people put in circumstances that I find hard to imagine. So I find them interesting. And over time, I've found that my audience is kind of the same way. And so the genesis of this book was based on things I already find interesting, things I think the audience finds interesting, and then figuring out a fun, interesting, and, and, and hopefully, you know, I hope it, it gets people to think way of putting it together. You mentioned the ink blot test, and you mentioned some of the similarities between the stories that you chose to tell. But what does draw you to those extremes of the human experience that you're compelled to talk about and explore? You know, I don't know the answer to that question, except to say that maybe it's a reaction, you know, just off the top of my head, spitballing here, maybe it's a reaction to a comfortable life. You know, when you look at your own existence and go, and then you read these history books, there's a, there's a Latin phrase I keep up in my studio. I don't have it with me, but it's a, I think it's ancient Roman. And I think it, it refers to how human beings have a propensity to look back on the past at these stories that would have been harrowing to live through and find them somehow entertaining. So I think maybe to look back at my own life and feel like, holy cow, some days I think I have it tough in my own life, and then read about what other people have had to go through and go, how the heck did they ever do? I find it compelling. And I especially find it compelling when they manage to overcome it, uh, live the rest of their life on, and deal with it. It's a reminder, I think, of the extremes of our capacity. And I marvel at that because you know they say you're only using 10% of your brain or 10% of your capacities at any given time. It's fascinating to watch people that are, that are using and obviously using significantly more than that. When you set out to write a book, in your mind, did you view it as an extension of the Hardcore History podcast and brand in a book form? Or was this, did you consider it an entirely new thing? I considered it an extension of the brand, if only because we were distilling the subject matter from the, the sort of stuff that the brand deals with. It seemed to me you had a natural audience with the people who listened to the podcast. There were always a lot of people asking for a written version, a transcript of the shows themselves. And, you know, I actually had gotten my hands on some of those early on years and years ago, only to find out to my own horrification that I'm un you can't even understand what I'm saying if you look at it in transcript form. 
I sound like, I mean, it's, it's the craziest thing to read it because it's something that works, I guess works, I'm going to assume works in an audio form and doesn't at all without having, you would have to really rewrite it. And so those people that always wanted transcripts always went away disappointed. The other reason people wanted transcripts is so that they could translate the work into other languages. And I was able to satisfy neither one of those demands. And the book instantaneously satisfied both of those. Also, I would assume that the hardcore history audience would like it. And maybe there are people out there who weren't exposed to the podcast who don't want to sit there and listen to the multi-hour long commitments that are my podcast would have found a, a different way to consume that worthwhile to them. So there was a bunch of different strands going into the thinking on that. As far as the apocalyptic moments that you ultimately decided to choose, how did you land on those specific moments? Why those? And how did you find them? Most of those, I'm going from memory here, most of those revolved around shows that we'd done previously. So not only were... See, I, I pick my podcast shows based on things that still fall within a realm of something I know a little about anyway. And then I do research on top of that. So for the book, I was basically doing both of those things because I was using some of the podcasts, which is based on former uh, areas of interest and, and study. And so these were things I knew a little about. And that sort of guided us towards talking about them rather than jumping off and talking about 17th century India or something where I know nothing. So I think the subject matter and the choices were driven by maybe, I hope, where my strengths were. As far as actually writing, what was the first step? Some writers use outlines, not all do. Did you use an outline or because some of these were taken from the podcast, were you more adapting from the podcast? You know, we had visions at the beginning that turned out to be wrong, that we could just, oh, it's going to be easy to just transmute these former shows into a book. And it takes a couple of months for you to figure out that that's wrong. <laughs> but, but, but when you do, then you have to reorganize your thinking and, and it has to be completely reimagined. So it's a combination of material that was imagined once before by you totally reimagined for the needs and requirements of a completely different medium. And so I think in the sitting down in the process, I leaned heavily on other people having not written a book before, because my normal, if you asked me how I would think a book should be written, I would tell you never having written one. Well, you think about what you want to write, and then you sit down and say, okay, I want to write about this. And then you sit down and think, okay, what do I want to write about this? And you take a very logical step-by-step -step progression downward. And a lot of the advice I was getting from people who knew a lot better than I was is just start writing. And these things begin to manifest in the process. I'm still not sure that I'm convinced that that's the way to do it, but that's the way we did it. And I think what you're seeing is the result of the process sort of leaning into areas that are places of natural interest of mine and places that because they're natural interests, we've gone into and talked about before. I think what was fun about being able to revisit them again is, for example, there's a chapter that incorporates the end, the collapse of the, of the Bronze Age back, you know, way back more than, God, you're talking 3,000 years ago. We had done a very long time ago a podcast on that back when my podcasts were these short little things of 30 or 40 minutes. And since that time, of course, we do much deeper dives. And also since that time, there's been a remarkable amount of research and new discoveries and new books and all kinds of new material on that subject. 
that's one of those shows that I would love to revisit and completely redo today, give the modern treatment to. And so the book kind of allowed me to do that with it in the written form. So there's a bunch of that going on too, where I have a chance to update, revisit, expand, and go deeper into a bunch of these stories that were interesting enough to make my short list for doing podcasts about anyway. As far as the research process, walk us through what that looks like. Imagine you're reading a lot of books. How long does that take? What does it look like? Are you writing down notes on note cards? Are you typing it into your computer? Are you just committing it to memory? What's your process for that? You know, it's evolved over time because the idea of of the depth that we were going to delve into these topics has evolved over time. And also, I mean, listen, when we started this thing, it was a sort of an off-the-cuff sort of deal. And then over time, it became something that by necessity, requirement, all kinds of things became a much more factually, it was always factually based, but a much more stringent level of of requirement on the research and the multi-views and and not relying on limited sources. So over time, if, if you actually charted it, you would see more books being used, more sources being gleaned from a different level of integration. And so now we're at the point where it's a very, it's a very heavy duty reading list whenever we start these things. And as I said earlier, when we, when we were talking about book topics, I always pick stuff that I already have a pretty good foundation for. I'm not starting from scratch. But then there's always so much more new stuff since the last time I was, I was delving into it, a lot of extra material to delve into. And it absorbs most of the time for a while. And I take, I have to do it myself. I can't have, we always get these people who write and say, I'd love to be an intern or something and do that for you. And I always have to tell them you can't do that because that's how I come up with all the weird little things that make up the bulk of Whatever it is I add to this, this story, many of these stories have been told a million different times before. I mean, I'm doing the Pacific War and the Second World War right now. That story's been told 10 bazillion different ways. And so the only thing I have to offer is whatever little strange things I find in a book or unusual ideas of ways we might look at something or strange questions to add. And that's stuff that I glean in the writing. So when I come up with those things, I I do. I write that stuff down and say, oh, I wonder about this. And then before we're getting into that section on the show, recording-wise, I'll sort of do a review. Oh, okay, this is a question that would fit into this next chunk of the show. And I'll always have a few things labeled in books that I want to quote from. We have something we invented. And I say we invented because we had a need for them. We call them audio footnotes, where in order to back up something I'm saying, since I'm not a historian, you need some some expert confirmation on this stuff, we'll quote somebody whose qualifications are better than mine. And so I mark those things out in advance. And then again, at the same time I'm consulting my own notes, I'll notice, oh, this is a likely spot chronologically or whatever, or in the storyline where I, I would probably use something from that work. And so those sorts of things are lined up. And then the rest of it is sort of improvisational. And it's like jazz. I have to hit these spots. But in between those spots, I can sort of freeform. As far as the writing of the book itself, for this book, there are multiple stories that are being discussed. Are you focusing in a story at a time? Are you going through one pass at a time and then repeating that and revising it? I think we tried, there was quite a bit of experimentation. And I think part of that is because I was such a neophyte 
rather than being able to very quickly organize my thinking on ways I wanted to do things, there was a getting up to speed process of going, you know, with, it's funny to go from being without sounding grandiose about it, an expert in your field, having done it for 30 years, one way or another, and then being so starting over in another field. And I, I felt all the time, like, I wanted to experiment and I wanted to try things out because I couldn't tell if I liked something or if it seemed like a fruitful vein to mine until I went a little ways down that road. And so there was a lot of actual trial and error, I thought, on my part, trying to figure out what to do. How did I want to organize them? I often had these ideas based on books that I'd seen once upon a time that I thought were unusual. Well, that stuff sometimes looks pretty good in your mind's eye. But when you get some things down on paper and say, okay, well, that book was about this subject. How, if I translated it into my sorts of subject matter, might that look? And until you, you know, by the time you've taken five days to experiment with that approach and five days to experiment with something else, you know, you're starting to utilize real writing time. And so I think by necessity, some of this stuff sort of to develop down kind of obvious paths, whether it's a chronological sense of an order, and then linking the subject matter up in a strand that's, I hope, connected the chapters sort of to each other. And I also hope that there was some sort of strand that connected the way we approach things. One of the things that was a bit of a fight sometimes, because it's a little unconventional, was me not having some generalized argument in the book. And what I said to the publishers and everyone else was, I realize that's the standard approach, but it would shock my listeners for me to take that because that's not the approach we ever use. I'm more of a Rod Serling questioner than I am a, a, someone who answers somebody else's questions. And if I do it right, there's a Socratic element to it where the questions themselves prompt lines of thinking that one hopes are fruitful, or if not fruitful, at least that tickle your mental fancy a little bit. And so trying to figure out how one translates that approach into a format that's more accustomed to having an argument followed by a supports for the argument kind of approach, I felt like that was daunting also. And I felt like had I been a, a more experienced writer, I might have had more mental ideas of, of what tools could have done that more easily. Like I said, for me, it required some experimentation trying to figure out what would accomplish that goal. Tell us about the editing process. Obviously, you're used to editing your own works when you work on the podcast, I imagine. But I imagine you also had an editor possibly through the publishing house. Walk us through the editing process. Did the publisher have a lot of uh, input on the editing side? Well, this is where we get to some of my own personal proclivities. One of the things that, you know, I came from a background where I worked for news operations and then radio operations and then moved to podcasting where the whole operation is me. And all of a sudden, I don't have to pay attention to anybody's concerns but my own. I don't have to work. I don't have to collaborate. Some people miss that. I enjoy that because it means, you know, I got nobody messing with my stew. I'm the only, you know, chef making it. But by its very design, the book publishing industry, as I'm sure all of your readers are well aware, involves a lot of parts that are interconnected, interlocking, the schedules all work together, many different departments of agencies. So yours truly had to really sort of fit himself into a mechanism. And I've gotten you know, slothful and out of shape and all that in collaborating with other people. 
One of the reasons I went with my publishers because there was a fantastic editor that I liked very much that I was working with. But one of the vagaries of the writing business these days, as everyone in the writing business knows, is there's a lot of turnover. And without getting into it, long story short, I lost the editor I chose the publisher for. I got another editor, also a good person. But when you're making adjustments in style and all sorts of things in mid-form, it's stuff that, listen, I'm accustomed to all sorts of pitfalls in my podcasting, but they're the pitfalls that I always run into and have years of experience with. I was learning how to be a writer, and many of your listeners will understand all these things better than I do. But the learning experience for a guy who's in his early 50s, mid-50s here, it was I haven't been there in a while. It was, it was quite the process, I thought. And I feel like I grew in a lot of ways, but I'm not sure it was always comfortable ways. You know, I was sweating a bit more than I'm used to doing. How did you know when the book was completed, especially since you had multiple stories going on? How did you even balance getting to a point where you were ready to say, this is it, this is ready to be released? Well, that's when deadlines come into play. That's other people telling you the book has to be done because I have a terrible problem. And that's that I would keep working on almost everything I've ever had still, if I could. And when I don't have anybody saying that this is a hard deadline, I tend to do that. But those interlocking parts that I was just telling you about require that you hit at least certain basic benchmarks or you will mess up a lot of other people who have jobs and lives, deadlines and things that they have to get done too. So in answer to your question, if they handed the book back to me, I'd say, oh yes, it's still not done. Give it to me. I'll work on it a while longer. So I'm still not on the side that says the book is done. So, <laughs> so, so you may, I, I'd argue against it. I'd still work <laughs> on it. So a project, I still want to work on that Bronze Age podcast that I got a chance to rewrite for the book. So I'm not the right guy to ask about when something is done. I have a very skewed vision of that traditionally. Early on, you hinted that you weren't as familiar with the query process and some of those traditional approaches to getting your book out there. If you had to write a query, how would you go about it? Is there a unique way that you would approach writing a query? And how would you get an agent and get your work published? You know, I, I don't know. And, I, and it's, not, it's not the kind of question for me to, uh, I never did that. And, you know, I'm sure everybody loves to hear that, but it came at me because of the podcast. But the one thing that I can say as a podcaster, and maybe, you know, they say that every, you know, when a surgeon looks at things, he sees a surgical problem. And when a podcaster looks at something, maybe I see a podcasting solution. But I would say that for somebody who's trying to come up with some pitch for an agent, I think I would do, you know, people think of podcasting as episodic, but I think I would use it as a one-time thing where you basically have the perfect pitch using sound effects if you want, or clips from movies, or whatever you needed to do to really sort of make a sales pitch, a movie sizzle reel trailer, whatever you want to call it, for an agent or anyone else to see. And I think that way, rather than some dry letter of the sort that it's real easy to throw away, maybe you come up with something where you're able to really grab somebody in a much shorter period of time. And with something that, you know, you can use Sometimes you have to really personalize some of those kinds of letters. And with something like this, you'd be able to simply say, Dear Bob, you know, at the beginning, and then send the same thing to everybody if that's what you did, or just put it up on one site that becomes, I often think websites are like this for yourself too, where it's joesmith.com. And on there you have your contact info, this video that shows the book that you are marketing your background, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, in my, in my sense, this would just be part of 
you know, they call, uh, what did they call it when, when all of the uh, video, audio, all those things came together like a synergy? I feel like from an artist's standpoint, it all sort of comes together in a person's website. And that would include whatever project you're working on. And that's something that you would direct agents or publishers or anyone else to. I know that that's not the exact answer to your question, but to me, I feel like it's all interrelated now with how an artist markets themselves and sends people to something where those people can discover everything about the artist in one place, not just the the show pitch, but who this person is and everything else. Does that make sense? I feel like once upon a time in the 1980s, a query letter type thing sounded like the way it was done. And it sounds like from your question, it must still be. But in my head, I feel like- how is that not evolved into something much more like what I just mentioned? It seems very old-fashioned and very traditional. Right. I love the way you're thinking outside of the box. And actually, no one's ever answered it like that out of 100 episodes. I don't that's think. That's because it's probably uh, wrong. See, that's why I had it all that space all to myself. <laughs> the wrong uh, answer. <laughs> no, it's great. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. Moving on to the podcasting process. Tell us about the inception of Hardcore History. How did it come about? Where did you get that idea? And why did you continue to evolve it? Started out as the first podcast I ever designed from scratch. Because I was already doing the current events podcast, the one called Common Sense. And that was really a, we'll call it a podcast version of a radio show that I did for years previously. So it wasn't a brand new, from the ground up design project just to suit the podcast medium, but Hardcore History was. And with a couple, I think we had like a year under our belt of podcasting then. So with that kind of experience, I kind of, you got an idea for the canvas and what you had to work with and how it might go. And it was my mother-in-law's idea, actually, because we were doing the other show. And I was always talking about history in my work, whether it was my news reporting or the radio stuff I did or the current events podcast. We always incorporated history and looking at it as a contextual tool 
And she said, I was telling some bloody story over dinner, which is pretty traditional. And I think probably just to change the subject, she said, have you ever thought about doing a podcast about this, about history? And I said to her, because I remember, I said, I'm not qualified to do a podcast. And she said, why? I said, well, you know, you have to have a doctor. You have to be a historian to do a podcast about history. She goes, I didn't know you had to have a doctorate to tell stories. And a light bulb went on over my head that made me realize that it's all in the way you do this, maybe, that determines what can be done. And so when you start a show, and this is something I always tell young podcasters who are asking for advice, when you start a show, it's like starting a television series. You can go in there with an idea, and that's your starting point. But a lot of things are going to alter that idea and beat on it like a hammer beating on on a piece of iron that eventually turns it into a sword so that, you know, Seinfeld wasn't Seinfeld is what I always say for the first 10 or 12 or 15 episodes. Everything was still finding its way and evolving based on feedback and, and input and what was working. And our show did the same thing. And so the 15 minute or so first episode we did sounds nothing like what we do today. But the idea came from that dinner table conversation with my mother-in-law. So when you say, how did that happen? It happened as a result of that conversation and us experimenting a little, not having any idea what it even would look like. And then starting off, you know, because when you have an entirely white space, you have to throw something on there to begin to, to mess with it and change it and alter it. And so you, you can actually go back. We sell the old shows and, and listeners will often comment about, about how it's like watching the evolution of how it became what it is. And so I really, the concept from beginning to now, is just a long process of evolution. That's a really long-winded answer to your question, but that's kind of how the show evolved too. As far as choosing the episodes themselves, you mentioned earlier that you usually choose topics you already know a little bit about, but how do you decide, okay, I'm definitely going to go with this topic. What drives you to want to tell that story? That's a really good question because there's a couple of things working on me. One, we always like to have a little variety. We usually keep 10 to 12 shows up there in our free feed. And we get shows out only a couple of times a year, the big shows. And so that's years of, of content, but then we move them to our paid archives. And so I always like to make sure that we have a decent amount of varied stuff on the free feed at any given time. So if we've done a lot of 20th century stuff recently, I'll say something like, okay, time to to go back down to a, a, a period from the Middle Ages or something from the ancient world. Or if we've done a lot of Western stuff, let's move over to another area. Stuff like that. So we try to vary it in those kinds of ways. I am limited by what I know. And I always tell, I always tell people we're probably going to plow a lot of the same ground someday and just look at different angles and different topics within those areas that I already have a proclivity for. But so that is the other thing. That drives directions. You know, what do I think I can bring some enthusiasm to? What am I excited about reading about for the next six months to? In the case of the long series I'm working on now, it's more like a year and a half type commitment. You know, what are you in the mood to read for a year and a half? So those are the kinds of elements that play into it. I always have this limited repertoire of which to choose initially and then boiling it down to what haven't we done in a while? What can you stand for the next uh, period of time? And somehow we stumble towards uh, the next topic. There's always a list of things on the to-do list, though. Tell us about how you prep for each episode. So you decide, okay, I'm going to write about this topic. You sit down, you start working on it. 
You mentioned reading for a long, long time, and you mentioned your research process for your book. How does your research process compare when you're writing a podcast episode? Well, we don't write the podcast episodes. We just perform them. So I have a friend who's an expert on the topic, and I've never been able to kind of explain or answer the question of how we do it. And he came up with the perfect description. He says, you do edited performance art. And he said, it's a little like Spinal Tap or the way that they did some of those movies where it's improvisational. I said earlier that it's a little like jazz where we have these points in the story we have to hit, but we know we have to hit them. We don't have to write them down. And then all I have to do is know that somewhere in the distance, I have to get back to that point at at a certain time. But until I get there, I can sort of improvise and go in a performance sense. You know, you load up on the coffee, you get jacked up on the topic, (laughs) you get going, and you see how long it goes until it falls apart. And then you cut it when it falls apart. And then you go back in the studio the next day and you try to pick up from where you left off. And then you, you know, and and eventually you have a bunch of those improvisational sections and that are emotional and inspired when they work strung together. And it's funny, I have a story I like to tell. I had one of these buddies. He's a little Charles Barkley like in the sense that he's brutally honest with you, almost to the point where you don't want to ask him sometimes for his opinion on things. But he used to say to me, he says, you know, He says, you were a really good radio talk show host, he goes, two days a week. And of course, the problem in that statement was I was a talk show host five days a week. And so it was a a reflection on the fact that, you know, I was not always at my best. And we used to say, it's a little like golf. It really depends on what side of the bed you woke up on that morning, whether or not it's an inspired performance. But what podcasting allowed me to do was to get up five days a week or these days, seven days a week, give it my best shot, string the best shots together, and you end up with you know, the two days a week that I should have stuck to back in the days of radio all put together. And so there isn't anything written, and that's kind of part of the charm now. I didn't realize it at the time, but now based on listener feedback, the fact that it sounds like it's off the cuff, because it is, is part of what makes it work for people, I guess. Some storytellers are very plot-driven, some are character-driven. From what we have noticed, it seems as though you're very character-driven. Where does that come from? Is that intentional? This is, you know, it's funny. This is like, I talk to people about this sometimes, and I think this is something, having children for me was an interesting revelation, because you get these little lessons, and, and I don't know how to interpret them, and I'm sure some expert on DNA would contradict me based on the scientific evidence, but it's funny to watch your children and see tendencies in them that you either have yourself or that your parent or a loved one had or something else that you think couldn't possibly be innate or couldn't possibly be DNA driven. And yet somehow it couldn't be any other way. There's no other excuse for why they have it. And so I've often thought about something like a storyteller gene. You know, there's classes that can teach you how to be a storyteller. You can go in there and they'll teach you. It's almost like the Dale Carnegie lessons on public speaking and all that kind of stuff. Debate and speech class. There are rules. Rhetoric is an ancient art. All those kinds of things. But then there's people that do it without any of that. It comes naturally. The people that would gravitate toward the job of oral storyteller in a million tribal societies over all the eras we've ever lived, right? I had a grandfather, an Irish grandfather, 
who just, he did it without even, I mean, people would just gather around and I'm not even sure his stories ever ended and nobody ever cared. And he didn't have to think about, okay, I should make sure the next parts naturally include some of this because the story needs it right now. Or this part of the story requires my voice to become more passionate. Or this part requires me to be more intense and downbeat about things. It just, it was a natural thing for him. And I only say that whole setup because whatever he had, that's what I have too. And I can't take any credit for it. And I don't have to think about it. But this is what worked for me in radio. That was the part I did best. There were a lot of things I didn't do well. This was the part I did well. And I've managed to construct my creative life in a way where that's the whole show. So one way or another, I've sort of taken this and distilled it down to whatever it was I was ever good at. And that's all you get now. And I do think that a lot of it's innate. And I do think that's why I don't have to write it down. And so, I mean, in that sense, I'm not sure. I mean, and I think you see this in a lot of fields where people gravitate toward those fields because they're naturally good at it. Some guy's good at math, some guy's good at comedy. So, you know, you tend to go in those directions. And I feel like podcasting got invented for me in my own little way and just was the perfect place for me to land to do this little teeny narrow thing that I do and that some people like. You've been podcasting a while. You went from, as you mentioned, around 30 minutes an episode to several hours. Tell us how your podcasting has evolved over time, both from a technical perspective, but also how it's socially accepted. Obviously, there are way more podcasts now. You know, I feel like, and I feel like a lot of the questions have been this way, and I apologize. I feel like it's in my head, I see multi strands woven together as the answer to that question. Because I feel there's a lot of ping and response things that are going on all during this period of evolution. So, for example, let's talk about length of shows. One part of that is audience feedback. So I remember we did one podcast and it just took too dang long. This is in the era where we weren't doing very long ones. I think it was the one we did about the Apaches and they're called Apache Tears. And I can't remember what the final number was, but I want to say in my head, it was like an hour and 20 minutes or something like that. And I think it was one of the few, if not the first show to go over an hour. And I remember we put an apology in the podcast where I said, I'm sorry, you know, I, I felt like it was an imposition on the listener's time, that it was kind of an unforgivable sin to do something like that. And the feedback from the listener was both overwhelming. And now that I look back on it, it was obvious, but it didn't occur to me at the time. They said, we have pause buttons. Why are you apologizing? You know, we don't have to listen all in one go. As long as it's good, we don't mind. And we started incorporating that idea of as long as it's good, they don't mind, right? I mean, if if you don't want to turn it off, I'm not sure you care how long it is. But it took us a while to figure that out that we could do that, right? I mean, and the listeners had to tell us and we had to learn. And that was part of the evolution of the process. We became one of the, I mean, I have no idea about the industry. So I'm always talking out of my rear end when I say anything about the industry or where we were in the industry. But I know we were one of the early shows going really long sometimes. And that revolves around another strand in the development, which is as our shows developed, we ended up with an audience that was different than what we assumed we would get. The show was based on the idea that we would get an audience of people who knew a lot about history already. 
that they were going to be like other history majors, that back when I was a history major, we would have these sorts of conversations between us, right? We all know the Alexander the Great story, so let's talk about weird things involving the Alexander the Great story. But when I would do shows like that, the feedback was from people that would say things like, we like all that weird stuff, but we don't know the Alexander the Great story. Can you please fill us in on it enough so we can enjoy these fun little things you're saying about it? So that became another one of those you know, prompt and response sort of developments over time where we go, okay, we didn't intend to be giving background, but we find that we have to. Okay, but more background means more depth which means more accuracy, which means more reading, which means more length to cover more ground, and to be totally honest, to cover our rear ends. Because once we start saying things that sound like, I'm telling you something went a certain way, I have to qualify that. I have to say, well, according to these people, it did, but maybe this person says that it didn't. Or some people say that, or here's a different way that went. That's all part of making sure that when a journalist is giving you some information here, and he's not a historian, that he's doing it in a way that seems to comport with the parameters that we've set around this show and your expectations. All those things over time, you know, as part of solving these individual problems for us as they developed, turned into this product. So you started with an idea at the A stage of this thing. And through everything, the pings and responses and feedback and evolution and solving problems, we end up with where we are today with the Z version, where we've gone from 16-minute shows to sometimes six-hour or multi-part nightmare epics on my part. But it's all those things working together. So none of this happened in a vacuum, and none of it happened all at once, if that makes sense. Dan, are you ready for what we call a series of seemingly random questions? I thought that's what we were doing right now. <laughs> sure. The first you were one. getting seemingly random answers. That's where I got confused. Okay. The first question we're going to tailor to you. Usually we ask, if you could take any writer to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose, which restaurant and why? In this case, if you could take any historical figure to any fast food restaurant, assuming you could speak the same language, which historian would you choose, which restaurant and why? I always give the same answer here because he kills a lot of birds with one stone for me. And I hate to use an answer that I just, I mentioned Alexander the Great earlier. I always say Alexander the Great because I figure if you give me Alexander the Great for any period of time, I'm not just going to learn about this interesting guy who I'm already fascinated with, but I'm going to learn about, okay, this is a man who's from the Balkans from three what, 2,500 years ago. So you're going to learn. It's like I had a teacher back in college, a professor, who was trying to teach us how, as history students, to better examine historical photos. And you know, you've only had photos since the 1800s. But he used to talk about how important it was to look at stuff in the background, right? Stuff that got caught accidentally, little things that weren't part of the official way the picture was set up to look, and how many little things you could find out about the story just by that sort of deal. I feel similarly about asking Alexander the Great to high tea or whatever it is I'm having with him, because I feel like I'm going to learn a lot about the ancient world. I'm going to learn a lot about the ancient Greeks. I'm going to learn a lot about people from other time periods, pre-Christian value. I mean, there's going to be a lot. So when I get out of there, I'm going to have learned a lot more than just about that one guy. I'm going to have answered a bunch of different questions. So I'm going to say Alexander the Great at the risk of sounding boring and like I give the same answer on that one all the time. 
The next seemingly random question before the show, you met our producer, Harry, but our audience has never met Harry. And for your show, we want to know, is there in fact a Ben? Because our theory is there is no Ben and there's just some sort of fight club thing going on in your head. Well, here's the thing. I've been told that my memory has been wiped on that before. And so I'm unaware anymore (laughs) if there is a Ben. And I'm rather confused by the whole thing, actually. So <laughs> I can't answer that question because I'm still striving like a child looking for their adoptive parent to find out if indeed there is a Ben myself. And if you find out about Harry, let me know, <laughs> would you? Because it might act as a clue, a jumping off point for my <laughs> detective-like efforts here. <laughs> Will do. The next question. What is one piece of advice or learning from your career that you'd like to pass along to either authors out there or any fans of history who might want to start a podcast or who are working on podcasts? Well, I have, you know, the one piece of advice, and I I give it pretty continually because I think it's my one piece of advice that I don't hear other people say that I think is useful. I think there's no doubt about it that it helps people. One of the things that I was blessed with coming up in the era that I did when I first started broadcasting, which was in television, was that it was an era before things were in digital stone. If I was having, and I had many of them, a bad day, that went off into the ether of a live broadcast and was never heard again, right? So I don't have to live today with some greatest hits reels of all of my horrible mistakes when I was first learning my craft, because it's all gone. You either heard it at the time or it's, it's history. Nowadays, when people are just starting off, their first show that they ever do is going to be available for people somewhere, somehow, until the internet dissolves you know, into the crust of the earth and we're all gone. And it becomes an endeavor out of my book, you know, an apocalyptic moment at the end of the world. So with that in mind, I always say you can kind of control what your worst material you ever release, what your most amateurish material you ever release is. Don't release it, is what I always tell people. And I always say, and I think this is, manifestly true of any creative endeavor. You know, we talked about shows like Seinfeld wasn't Seinfeld for the first five episodes. So what if Seinfeld had had the freedom to not release its first five episodes, to do them, learn all the things that they were going to learn from them. And then when they released their sixth episode for the audience, it was actually the audience's first episode. What I always tell podcasters is you're going to make the most growth in your career. And you're going to make the most embarrassing mistakes, and you're going to sound the worst for your first five episodes. So do your first five episodes and then throw those away and don't release them. And then do your sixth episode, which to your audience will be the first, but you're going to have learned unbelievable amounts of stuff. And the most important thing is you're going to have a much clearer idea of what a show should look like based on what did and did not work for you and what you showed to your friends and your cohorts and your collaborators and maybe people that you sampled the opinion of, you're going to be able to really take it back to the drawing board and recraft it so that by the time, you know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, they say, by the time most people get a chance to have a first impression of your work, it's a much more finely honed version of that. That was me deleting the first five episodes of our podcast (laughs) on the internet. (laughs) That's funny. That to me always seemed like a piece of advice where you would never, I doubt you would regret it. You know, I thought that that would be useful regardless of your situation. I think people hate the idea because it sounds like a ton of wasted work, 
But I feel like if you ever get far enough down the road, you'll never regret that. My last question, you mentioned earlier that your podcast episodes can run pretty long. It's bad that I feel an immense pressure to keep our podcast running as long as possible, given that you are Dan Carlin. <laughs> I don't, we'll never live start, up to the I, hype I on start, that, uh, man. You know, just, that's one of those things where I don't, I don't want them to be that long. I feel like sometimes we get trapped into this thing where you buy your ticket and you take your ride on some of these stories. And because they're not written out, you know, you get to a certain point and you go, oh my God, at this rate, it's going to take us blah, blah, blah long to get through this, even if we find some clever tricks. And so I think uh, no one's more surprised sometimes than I am by how long they turn out. So you have to make it as long as it takes is what I guess that boils down to. Well, thank you, Dan. It's been a lot of fun. Before we go, did you want to plug anything? Obviously, your book is out now. The end is near. Apocalyptic moments from the Bronze Age collapse to nuclear near misses is available now. If you're listening, please check that out. But Dan, did you want to plug anything? Obviously, your podcast, maybe your Twitter. Tell us. What do you want to shout out? You just gave me more than enough. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me. I really appreciate it. I'm honored to be on. And thanks. Thank you so much, Dan. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.